You're listening to Beyond Infinity. Beyond Infinity. Beyond Infinity. Piers Cunningham talking with Mr. Jeffrey Wells. He is an honorary consulting urologist at Box Hill Hospital. And he's also the organiser of the open letter that was sent on the 31st of August to Premier Dan Andrews, the Victorian government leader. And that was from the COVID Doctors Network. And if you'd like to see that letter, which I actually have already spoken to Jeff about, you can go to the website coviddoctorsnetwork.com and you can see that full letter. Jeff, thank you for joining me again today. Yes. It's a, uh, a pleasure to speak with you and interact with you, and I'm very appreciative of you uh, enabling me to, to speak tonight. Quite a lot has happened since we last spoke about this very harsh lockdown that we have in Victoria, and we're still there. So several weeks after we last spoke, we are still in lockdown, and it looks to me, and I want to come, come to this a little bit later, but it looks to me like the milestones that the government is expecting to see before it, before it goes to so-called COVID normal are basically eradication, which a lot of people are saying is actually impossible. We're not going to eradicate this disease. Let's start with one of the really sad consequences Jeff, uh, which is people self-harming and, and suicide. Now, you've got some figures from Royal Melbourne Hospital. As we said earlier on, Pierce, one of the significant downsides of the lockdown has been the effects on, on mental health of uh, the Victorian population. And I think it's affecting all of the population, from infants through to, obviously, people in nursing homes and all the people in between. And... We know that uh, self-harm at the children's hospital has increased by 30%. We've got figures of domestic violence that have also significantly increased. We know certainly that depression and anxiety, in in particular in uh, teenage children, is markedly increased. And there's been a recent uh, correspondence from Stacey Harris, who's a GP in Camberwell, who is absolutely... Uh, very, very concerned about what's happening to young children, and as we, as if those out there who have uh, read the letter and who are informed about it will realise that Stacey, GP of 15 years' experience, is seeing stuff in her surgery, patients in her surgery that she's never seen previously, and she's giving antidepressants to 12-year-old children, and this is basically unheard of in the past. So the downside of the lockdown is from a mental health point of view is really uh coming home uh, it's just getting worse and worse and worse and this is what we're very concerned about we've that's why we initially wrote the letter and we've written the letter uh four weeks ago as you said Piers. we've had no response from the premier which is um quite disappointing um when we were speaking about uh the lockdown amongst colleagues Last weekend, we had a variable degree of opinion as to what Daniel Andrews was going to do. Was he going to open up? Was he going to continue? Basically, I think the vast majority of people are very disappointed in in, in what has happened. We haven't really seen any significant opening up of this lockdown. We've basically seen that we're allowed an extra hour to uh, go outside and... uh, perhaps exercise, but we really haven't seen 
seen any increase in socialisation. Mm. Now, by that I mean we're still unable to go and see uh, our, our parents. We're still unable to go and see grandchildren. We are unable to have people around for dinner. Mm. We can't. All we're able to do is have two families with five people to go out into a park. Mm. Now, this is extremely disappointing, Piers. I mean, it's really not what uh, life in Victoria should be at this stage. The numbers have markedly decreased. And as we say with a lockdown, the lockdowns work initially. But what happens with lockdown is that there's unintended harm initially. And as the lockdown goes on, the amount of harm progresses. So what we were looking for, and we might have been a little bit optimistic, I think, but we were certainly looking for something like what's going on in New South Wales, in particular in Sydney, where people can socialise, they can go out for dinner. I mean, think about what's happened in the last six months with, say, I, I know you've got a mother who's uh, in her late 80s. I've got a mother in, in, um, in her early 90s. We haven't been able to go out for dinner for the last six months. Mm. And I think this is just, it's not really what we expect on Victorian life. Mm. So the other thing we, we wanted, so we're talking about socialisation, which is an integral part of life. Mm. We wanted to be able to exercise. Now, <clears throat> I think there's two forms of exercise, basically. We've got indoor exercise and outdoor exercise. Outdoor exercise, we mean fishing, playing tennis, going to the golf course, and all these areas of golf and, and tennis are associated with exercise, but they also associated with socialisation. They're a huge part of life in Victoria, mm. especially for retired people. Mm. And this has been taken away from them. It's extraordinary. But then there's the other form of exercise, which is gyms, where people get out there and seriously exercise and produce endorphins, which is the body's natural response. It's uh, like a natural morphine. Yep. And a lot of people, whole, whole life is revolved around gyms for exercise, for endorphins, for Pilates, for a feel-good attitude to life. And this has been taken away from them as well. So basically we're extremely disappointed with the government's response. The other thing I'd like to say is schools. Now, you know, I, I think uh, primary school children are allowed to go back to schools, but I think I'm not certain of the ages here, but I think the children between about 10 and, um, year, 10 and 15 still have to do homeschooling. Now, when you look at Sweden, in Sweden... No problems occurred in, in, in schools. Children and teachers didn't have any higher increase of the virus than anyone else in the, in, in the situation. So the fact that uh, schooling has, hasn't come back to what we wanted is also extremely, it's extremely disappointing. Mm. Imagine if you were doing final year or, or even the last two years, because in fact both, both your year 11 and year 12 are... Uh, both count towards your VCE in Victoria, as they do in New South Wales. You mentioned last time we spoke of a, of a, a friend of yours who has a, uh, a grandchild uh, who's at school in Sydney and then, and then a grandson in, in Melbourne and how they just had such completely different years. Totally diverse, uh, and, totally diverse piece. And, and, well, and really hard to, I mean, just from an academic point of view, I mean, what, do, what happens with their results? I mean, do they repeat the year? How do the universities adjust their 
entrance criteria for courses. I mean, I, I don't know how that's going to work. Well, it's going to be extremely difficult, and it's yet another example of the downside of the lockdown. Yeah. You know, it's 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 heartbreaking to see what's going on. I think I told you also that um, one of the emails I got was from a school counsellor, and she said the uh, effects of the lockdown on school children, school children was absolutely devastating. Mm. And, you know, this is just so unnecessary. I mean, stopping children going to school is harmful. That's the bottom line. Yeah. And comparing it with Sweden, where st- children went to school from the start, there was no significant increase. Children didn't die. School uh, teachers didn't die. It, it, there's, there's no difference. And what we're seeing is just an enormous amount of harm. The lockdown applies to everyone, and yet not everyone is equally vulnerable to, uh, to getting COVID and having a, a really bad health response. Uh, and, and there are figures published on the government's you know, health website, dhhs.vic.gov.au, and it shows the age groups and the fatalities that have happened from COVID in those age groups. The, the vast majority are, who've died from COVID are people above the age of 70. So the 70, 70, 70 to 79 age group is 125. The 80 to 89 is 340. And the 90 plus age group is 288. And that's out of a total of 800 people who've died very sadly in Victoria this year in 2020. It shows very clearly that the people who died are over the age of 70. And yet these restrictions are being applied to everyone equally. Exactly. What you say is exactly correct. If I could just say a couple of things here. Mm. First of all, I totally agree. It does appear to be un, unjust discrimination of younger people. Mm. To me, this is just the, the, the figures tell us that. By the same token, what we have to do is we have to treat elderly people with a, a huge amount of respect, people in nursing homes. They've developed the country. We realise that the age of people going into nursing homes, most people have, have a life expectancy if they go into a nursing home of about two years. Now, there's 250,000 people generally in nursing homes in Australia. And I think this is where people now have to understand the figures and we have to have a little bit of transparency here. Mm. And the figures are that 160,000 people a year die in Australia. And if we divide that by 25%, which is the population of Victoria compared with Australia, we've got 40,000 people in Victoria dying every year and those people we know that um, the vast majority of these people are dying with cardiovascular disease with cancer the number of people who have died of the virus and we're not saying this is insignificant we're not trivializing it but it is less than a thousand people and as you've stated pierce most of these people are over 75. Mm. we know that the chance of dying if you're under 60 is incredibly small. Yep. It's about one in 150,000 people. As you get over 75 to 80 and you have comorbidities, the chance of dying is markedly higher. Mm. And this is reality. I mean, people go into nursing homes and the vast majority of people who go into a nursing home, the absolute vast majority of people are going to die in a nursing home. And this is life. 
and we can't do anything about this. But there have been viruses, many viruses in the past. We haven't had lockdowns for other viruses as we have in this situation. And I think this is what's causing a great deal of anxiety in the community. As we've said, the harmful effects are absolutely significant. And you have talked about a concern that you've got that there's so much focus and this sort of emphasis in, in dealing with COVID at the expense of other very serious things that, that are just being shunted to the side. People are afraid to go to hospital. Cancer numbers are going up. You mentioned this last time we spoke. And it's actually expected, I believe, that there is going to be a spike or a surge after COVID is over or after either there's a vaccine or, or we, uh, we get to so-called COVID normal. And I want to talk about what that means and the likelihood of that being achieved a bit later. But there, there is a fear that there will be a big surge in these other diseases, which we, we deal with as a society, we deal with all the time. They don't, they don't come and go. They're there forever. Absolutely, Pierce. Well, we're talking now about delayed diagnosis, as we've spoken about previously. We're talking about results of people presenting late and as a result having their cancer treatment uh, with a far worse prognosis, basically because of the fear of going to the doctor. And there are all sorts of obvious diseases that are occurring. As we've said, 40,000 people a year die in Victoria and 1,000 people, less than 1,000 people have died of the virus. That's 2.5%. We've got 97.5% of people who are dying of other diseases. Mm. So Who aren't being treated properly. Absolutely. We need to consider the broad health of the community. This is extremely important. Yep. The long-term, all-things-considered goal of public health policy. This is exactly right, Pierce. We have to have a community that is happy, that feels fulfilled, that have interaction with family. These are things that we're not seeing now. We need to be able to travel as a family. We need to be able to play sport as a family. We need to be able to watch sport. These are the things that the lockdown have taken away from us. And as we've said in the past, in the short term, the results can be effective. But as time goes on, we get unintentional results. But what worries me, Pierce, is that the unintentional results in a funny sort of way become intentional because we keep telling the people involved of the side effects and unfortunately we are not getting a response you're listening to beyond infinity jeff the initial letter that you and the covert doctors network sent to the premier and to other people in parliament uh and that was on the 31st of august so a month ago um you did not receive any response any formal response to that and then in subsequent efforts that you've made to contact the premier uh you have you've you've got nothing is that right no that's exactly right we have um I have got uh, access to his uh, phone number and we have briefly spoken, Mm. but that's all. Um, I've spoken to Mr Andrews and said that we'd be very keen to have doctors at the coalface sit across the table with the policymakers and discuss the situation. I'm convinced that the policymakers are living in a bubble and they don't understand 
what's going on at the coalface. I can't see any other reason. Otherwise, this situation wouldn't have arisen. But unfortunately, we haven't had a reply. I have sent him uh, a couple of uh, text messages. And uh, also, um, Dr Stacey Harris has written her letter and she hasn't received anything as well. So disappointing, to say the least, Pierce. Mm. But um, hopefully we can continue to try and get a response. I should mention now that in addition to the 13 senior experienced GPs and medical specialists who wrote that letter, that open letter to the Premier on the 31st of August, after that, in excess of 500 doctors from Melbourne and Victoria signed in support of that. And they had to be verified. So they're all verified, qualified medical practitioners. And for a government to ignore that weight of opinion of medical experts, it is really quite odd. I mean, I know that they have their own, well, they have the chief medical officer, but to ignore that kind of weight of opinion, I do find pretty strange. On that subject of ignoring your efforts to contact and have a say in in government policy on lockdown, there has been talk about why, if, if you're going to have such onerous restrictions, then surely you should release comprehensive data. The the Victorian public deserves and is owed a comprehensive explanation, and they're not getting it. I wonder what your interpretation of that stonewalling is. Either they, um, they know their actions won't stand up to scrutiny, or what's worse is that perhaps they're lacking data, which they should have, and they don't want to admit that they don't have. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, we all know that the public health authorities, their job is to collect data and transparently collect and communicate this data with the public. That's not unfair. That's not unreasonable. But we are not getting any communication about, say, for instance, masks. Now... What people believe is that masks in outside settings, really, there's no data to say that they're effective. There's no data to say that if you're on a golf course, wearing a mask is going to be a benefit to people, whether it's going to decrease the risk of viral spread. Mm. I mean, there's just nothing in the data to say this. Compared with wearing masks inside, well, I'm not sure about that, but common sense and social distancing are what we're about we, we we must continue to have common sense social distancing and a balanced view mm. it's like the, the curfew there was nothing to suggest that the curfew had any scientific value mm. you'd reckon they would have consulted the police to see if it was going to be beneficial because the government's explanation for the curfew was that it would help policing but the police were never asked whether that was actually the case Yes. And it really does beg the question, why? Why not have more openness, have better data available to justify this this severe lockdown? And stonewalling very, very reasoned arguments from 500 plus medical practitioners, it's unprecedented. And this is a health crisis. This is not a military thing or, you know, this shouldn't be about politics. But unfortunately, there are reasons to suspect that it is and that there is a great determination after the failure of quarantine earlier this year to really try to smother the virus. 
And that, that brings me to this idea of COVID normal. Now, I was looking on that website, which I, uh, I mentioned before. It's dhhs.vic.gov.au. On that, it defines the COVID normal target as follows. So no new cases for 28 days, no, no active cases in Victoria, and no outbreaks of concern in other states or territories. Now, that to me sounds like the objective is eradication. But as, as another doctor, a colleague of yours, Mr. Robert Miller, who I've, I've interviewed separately, it's on our website, beyondinfinity.com.au, if people want to listen to that separate interview. Mr. Miller very clearly said that he didn't actually think that eradication was a worthy goal. It was unrealistic to think that you are going to eradicate this disease. No, I, I totally agree, Piers. I mean, I think there's only one word to describe that figures, and that is these goals that uh, the Andrews government has uh, set are totally unrealistic. Mm. They're far too harsh, and they're not obtainable and we've seen this in new zealand and the only way you're going to be able to do this is if you totally isolate the country now if you don't isolate the country we're an island and you're not going to have any immigration you're not going to have any anyone coming in university students any tourism well then you might be able to do this but this is not realistic obviously we're not going to live in a country where there's no immigration it is just totally unrealistic and I think it shows just a, a lack of common sense and a lack of sort of social harmony. Anyone who's saying that they're, they're going for extermination isn't, is not living in, in the real world. And it's just not feasible. It's totally ridiculous. Yep. And, and the other reason why that's unlikely to, be, to ever be the case, eradication, is that the figures that, that we get each day and that we have this, you know, the sermon from Spring Street every morning, late morning, at lunchtime, whenever it happens to be. Those figures are only based on, on testing and the data that's available, but there's, there's still people who've got it who are asymptomatic. We know the disease totally. can... A lot of people who, who won't show any symptoms at all don't know they've got it, don't bother getting tested. So that means the virus is still there, so you haven't eradicated totally. it. It makes it very unlikely that you will eradicate it, I would have thought. You'll never be able to eradicate it because basically at the present time, people are, who are getting tested are supposed to be symptomatic. Well, your view on symptomatic and my view on symptomatic may be the same, but they could be quite different. Mm. We see how people relate to illness. Person A relates in one way, person B relates in another way. So someone who's symptomatic to person A might be asymptomatic to person B. And furthermore, we know that in New York, it seems as though about 25%, if you test the whole population, about 25% of people could have come in contact with the virus. And as we know, young people who come in contact with the virus, a significant, in fact, the vast majority of them, can be asymptomatic. So yeah. it's totally unobtainable. It doesn't make any common sense to me. Well, because eradication is not possible, that means we will actually never achieve COVID normal this, I suppose it raises this omnibus legislation, which is a lot of people are very concerned about and worried about. You have a government which doesn't have a state election. We don't have a, a state election until the end of 2022. So we've got another, basically another two years of these guys. If eradication is impossible, we don't get to COVID normal, then we are going to continue to be in a form of, of restriction for the next, well, 
well, at least for the next two years. Yeah, I, I totally agree. See, there's some, there, there does seem to be a, sort of a mood in the community now where they're saying, okay, we're going to ease things up in the, in the next couple of weeks. There'll be lots of things eased up. People will be able to go out and have more exercise. We'll be out uh, socialising more and everything's going to return to normal much more quickly than we expected. But I'm not sure that this is what's going to happen because I don't think the government's response to the whole situation has been rational. Mm. I don't think there's been any common sense or harmony and they haven't listened to the doctors. They haven't listened to the people at the coalface. The bureaucrats have taken over and I hate to say this, Piers, but Victoria is not the state that I grew up in at the present time. We grew up in the most beautiful state. We had the most livable city in the world. And this is only in the last uh, six to eight months where things have drastically changed. Mm. Now, we know the virus is, uh, is a pandemic, but the government's response to the pandemic to me has been unreasonable, unscientific, and has caused more harm than good. And the idea that we're going to get a vaccine, there seems to be a real problem with that. Sacrificing everything until you get a vaccine would seem to be crazy because it could take years to develop an effective vaccine. What is initially available may not be 100% effective. It may be a long time before it's widely available and guaranteed to work. And the longer you wait for a vaccine, the less proportional your interventions become. That's exactly right. I mean, vaccines are difficult. We know this. We know from the flu vaccine, it changes every year. We don't know how effective a vaccine is going to be. We don't know when it's going to become available. So you can't hang everything on a vaccine. You have Mm. to learn to live with this virus. Mm. And if you can't learn to live with this virus, this just means using common sense and compromise. It means a balancing act between the health of younger people, the health of elderly people, and the business community. Now, we know that the vast majority of people that are affected by the virus are the elderly people. We've got the technology. I I think one of the things that's going to happen is we're going to be able to diagnose people with COVID much more quickly than we have in the past. And this is going to make a huge difference to uh, how we treat the elderly. We, we can get a test, and then if we test negative, then surely we can go and see our relatives in nursing homes. And with you know PPE and all, all sorts of um, ways to uh, pr- prevent spread of, of the virus, we can get our elderly people to, to come back to some sort of normality. And younger people who are, as we know, not affected by the virus to any great degree, can get back on to living a normal life. Mm. So it's a common sense approach here. Mm. Jeff, fast testing, you know, obviously there's a, there's a lot of advantages that go with that. It allows you to open things up. It allows you to, you know, get travel going and, and potentially international travel as well as travel within Australia and, and businesses yes. can open. All There's so many advantages that go with uh, with yes. fast testing. Can you update me on, on what options exist there? I mean, I heard that they were talking about sniffer dogs being able to detect COVID. Um, what, what's your attitude to that? And what other fast testing technology is available? Well, I'm 
not sure how accurate the sniffer dogs would be. It's probably um, a little bit like sniffer dogs uh, at the airport looking for drugs. And I don't know uh, how accurate that's going to be, Pierce. Mm-hmm. Uh, the normal PCR test, that's the gold standard. But there's a new test that I'm not 100% certain uh, of the details, but from what I can gather, it's a, uh, a test that can determine if you are COVID positive within between 15 and 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Now, if this is accurate and it has good sensitivity specificity, then this will be a huge breakthrough because mm-hmm. it's going to change the way we can diagnose the disease and it can change management. So I think this is this, this is basically what we need. And then we can you, you can spread the tests and you can actually then test the general population because we really don't know what the incidence, as we've said previously, of the disease is in the population. But I think this is going to be a huge, a huge breakthrough. And we've got to combine this with common sense, social distancing and washing PPE on the healthcare workers. They're at risk. We can't underestimate that. And just keep a, val- a, a balanced approach and, and get on with leading a relatively normal life, yep. as they're doing in New South Wales and as we are not doing in Victoria. Jeff, are you concerned by the numbers of this sort of second wave or whatever you want to call it, in the resurgence of the virus in Europe, in France, for example? Well, it's a very good question, Pierce, because um, the numbers have markedly increased. Now, there's a couple of reasons why this seems to be happening. First of all, it's summer. People are out partying. It's predominantly younger people who I think are not adhering to social distancing. Mm. And I really think that it's a little bit different from Australia. I mean, in Australia here, we're very fortunate we're an island. The population density is markedly uh, diminished compared within Europe. Mm. The general health of the Australian population is probably better than the popu- than the general health of the European population. There's less smoking. Mm. It does cause some concern, obviously, the number of people, and they're predominantly young people who are testing positive. What we have to think, though, is we just can't think about numbers testing positive. We have to take a holistic approach and find out what the mortality is. Yep. And it would appear that the virus has mutated and the initial results, PS, are that the mortality has markedly diminished to the vicinity of 20 times. So uh, hopefully um, this, is, this is what's happened. So the virus has actually become less dangerous. Absolutely, yeah. Still contagious, but much less virulent. Yep. Hmm. And this is what's happening. We still have to wait a little while for this. But the, the figures, they are concerning. But I would think that the mortality is going to be markedly, markedly diminished. Well, you can see that, actually. If you look at a lot of European countries that are having this this second wave, second surge of coronavirus, their death rates are, are nothing like what they were no, uh, you know, back no, in, in uh, April, May. No, they're markedly diminished, mm. yes. Look, I suppose this is not a bad place to, to wrap things up. You might want to add a few things later. You know, one of the things that been, keeps being said to us by Dan Andrews and by the Victorian state government is that the virus does not discriminate. 
Now, there's a problem with that, I think, because from everything that you've said today, it sounds like, in fact, the virus does discriminate. If you're young and healthy, if you're under the age of 70, but obviously if you're under 50, you're even in a better position, it's just a completely different virus for you. It's a completely different risk. So the virus does discriminate. Absolutely. I mean... Uh, I think Daniel Andrews said that, and it's one of the many inaccurate things that he has said, mm. and it's it's totally inaccurate. Mm. And I think basically what we should be, think about is um, we've got this disproportionate uh, intervention here. For some reason, we don't seem to be able to review it. We yeah. don't seem to be able to change tracks. I, I, I don't quite understand this, mm. why there's all this evidence about harmful side effects, but... We don't seem to be able to say, well, look, we have to change the situation here. What we've got is a man standing up for two hours every day talking and the questions he's being asked don't seem to have, to me, a great deal of relevance. Mm. And it seems sort of somewhat unusual that he can stand up for two hours for the last, I don't know, four months and we can't sit down and speak to him for a period of 20, 30 minutes and just say, excuse me, Mr Premier, this is what we are seeing in front of us. Are you aware of what is going on? We don't seem to be able to do this. Now, this is, doesn't seem to be democratic. Mm. So, Pierce, what happens in medicine, as you are no doubt aware, is that people often ask for a second opinion. Now, there are some people that who are surgeons or whatever, so the patient comes up and says, look, I want a second opinion, sort of feel as though they're being devalued. I think it's a great idea. The patient says to me, would you like a second opinion? But I have a second opinion, Jeffrey. Uh, I say, absolutely. That's your right. That's your democratic right, and it's just basic common sense. Yeah. Now, we don't seem to be able to have a second opinion, and this is what I think is incredibly unfair and i think it needs to occur and it really does make you wonder why i mean what's your impression i mean it just to me either you know that what you're doing is not supported by the data you're fearful of being exposed or what's your take on this it just seems a very strange situation i think um, some of the people involved are quite complex characters <laughs> and they're not able to see the other side of the mountain, if you like. People should be always able to sit back, to listen, and that's what life is all about. We have to respect our peers, we have to be able to speak and come to a, a justifiable conclusion. Mm. But we just can't railroad things through without listening to the other side, especially when there's lots of people on the other side who have spent hours and hours treating patients. I mean, let's get one thing for sure. Daniel Andrews is not a doctor. We're the doctors. He's not a doctor. He's not listening to us. Doctors listen to patients. We learn everything off the patients. And he's not prepared to learn anything of us. And I think this is extremely worrying. And I think it's extremely disappointing, Piers. I've been talking with Jeff Wells, Honorary Consulting Urologist at Box Hill Hospital. Thanks a lot for talking, Jeff. 
Thank you, Peace. Very much appreciated.